Welcome to this podcast about Hilton Head Island and the Lowcountry. I am Jay, your host, and today we are learning about Hilton Head in the post-Civil War era. Rich Thomas joins us to talk about phosphate mining, the logging and turpentine industry, hunting clubs, and oyster canning on Hilton Head as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road. Rich Thomas is back with us today to talk Hilton Head and the post-Civil War era. Rich is the author of Backwater Frontier, Beaufort County, South Carolina, at the forefront of American history. And he is also the owner of Hilton Head History Tours here on Hilton Head Island. Rich, welcome back. Thanks again, Jay. Good to be back with you. Rich, after the Civil War, what happened here on the island? Was there a certain industry that took root? I think you can probably very safely say, Jay, that up until about 40, 50 years ago, Hilton Head's main industry was always agriculture. There was a time that Hilton Head had a manufacturing industry that was shipbuilding on the one hand, and then the cutting and prefabricating of live oak shipbuilding parts on the other hand. And outside of those manufacturing industries on Hilton Head, and then the harvesting industries of the timbering business, and the I guess you could say harvesting industries of the turpentine business. There was there was really not much other than agriculture on Hilton Head during its history. There was no particular industry that took root on the island after that, although you did see a period of time from about 1870 to 1900 that lumber companies were operating in the area, leasing land, cutting down primarily the yellow yellow pine and the and the longleaf pine woods. And then for a brief period in the 1880s, really primarily the 1880s and into the early 1890s, there was a phosphate industry that really started in the Port Royal Sound area that wasn't ever really done on Hilton Head. There was never any mining on Hilton Head, but it provided jobs for some of the native islanders who were resident on the island during that period of time. What was the the phosphate industry? How did they acquire it? Can you educate us a little bit about that process and how that started? So phosphate was really mined from the bluffs, a clay kind of soil called marl primarily that was in the bluffs of a lot of the rivers that are in this area. Probably the most heavily mined area in these parts was the Cusaw River, and the Cusaw River being kind of inland of the Beaufort Sea Islands connecting over to St. Helena Sound, really along Port Royal Island on some of the bluffs of the Beaufort River. And into the St. Helena Sound, the mouth of the Cumbie River, and then not as part of the Port Royal Sound series of mining sites, but it was also continued up to Edisto Island. And so along the coast in that particular part during the 1880s and the early 1890s, there was a very, very robust phosphate mining industry. A lot going on that did provide work for a lot of the native islanders that were here on Hilton Head as well as some of the other Port Royal Sea Islands. But we also had outsiders that came to Hilton Head for their industries, and that was primarily the the turpentine and the lumbering business. What was phosphate used for? So phosphate was used for fertilizer, and the mining of phosphate would take place where they would essentially look for hardened deposits, calcified deposits of phosphate in this clay soil, and that would be loaded into a a ship, typically. Um, They're kind of like rocks. They're not 
hard like granite would be, but they're uh, they're much harder than clay. So uh, those rocks would be loaded into a ship typically, and that ship would then carry the phosphate ore to a site uh, that would be able to transfer it typically onto a rail car. And then it was taken from there and taken to a processing facility where it was washed and then ground. And various parts of the phosphate were able to be in various densities of the phosphate were able to be used for different purposes. But the primary purpose for it was all fertilizer oriented. After the Civil War and the Union troops eventually leaving the island, what was happening with the native population on the island at that time? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful story in, in, in so many ways. What really happens is that people who had been very much dependent upon the Union Army and Navy forces in the area for their incomes, which had enabled a great deal of their sustenance, they were very quick to be able to adapt to a life where they had to self-sustain. And essentially what, what occurred, at least on Hilton Head, was that all of the formerly enslaved people who had come to Hilton Head for refuge or protection had ultimately settled in the town of Mitchellville. And at the end of the war, when the Union left, because there were no jobs and because the quarter acre of land that each of them owned in Mitchellville was not enough for them to be able to raise enough crops to sustain their families on, they ended up forming eight different kinship uh, groups. And those kinship groups pooled resources and went to different parts of the island. And they started doing cooperative farming on those parts of the island and raising crops that ended up being more than adequate to supply themselves, their families. And so over time, these kinship co-ops produced surplus agricultural products that were then taken by boat to the market in Savannah. And initially, the boats that they used were boats that they built, um, bateau boats that had sails on them. Now, there's some wonderful photographs that the uh, Coastal Discovery Museum has that actually show one of the last double-sailed bateaus that was built on the island sailing to the Savannah market with a load of produce. But after that, um, there were steam-powered vessels that would pick people up here and drop them at the market in Savannah. And um, there were a couple of large paddle wheel type steamers initially. And then over time, uh, Charlie Simmons and his boat, the alligator would take crops to Savannah every, every day and take them to the market so that they could be sold there and produce income for the families here on Hilton Head. And then there was also the ability to harvest the fin fish and the shellfish from the waters nearby. And a Native Islander fishing cooperative formed. Uh, This is a good bit later, but uh, the Native Islander fishing cooperative formed that did all the fishing and did the same thing with the surplus fish that they did with the crops. And that was enabled them to be taken to the markets in Savannah for sale. So people who had been completely dependent became totally independent and were able to eke out uh, not subsistence living and subsistence agriculture, as it's often termed, but actually a a fairly comfortable uh, form of an agricultural lifestyle on Hilton Head after the departure of the Union. And that really lasted up through about the 1950s. 
when the Sea Pines Company, or not the well, the Sea Pines Company started in the late fifties, but the Hilton Head Company began their lumbering operations here on the island in 1950. So that was what went on really during that time. Education was incredibly important for them, and there were five one-room schoolhouses educating children from essentially uh, the elementary grades up through high school years. And church was also very important. And there had been three churches built in Mitchellville during uh, the days of Mitchellville, and a couple of other churches uh, started up uh, after uh, Mitchellville had disbanded and people had moved off to different parts of the island. It's a very peaceful life, very uh, free from any interference or any contamination by the fast-moving outside world. That's pretty much what they were doing. It seems like Hilton Head was, it garnered a lot of attention during the Civil War. The secession talk starts over in Bluffton. Lincoln ends up putting 12,000 some troops on Hilton Head Island. There's a lot of attention, a lot of stuff going on here at that time. Then Civil War happens, Union troops leave. And it seems like there was a very long stretch of time where the island was sort of forgotten by the outside world until around the 40s when turpentine and logging discovered the island and started taking advantage of the resources. Well, you know, it, it's interesting, Jay, because the, the turpentine business actually starts falling off in the 1940s and the logging also. A lot of the timber forests had been depleted by that time for the for the lumber business and were in the process of reforestation. You know, what was going on when the island was, for, and it very much was forgotten, it was isolated. Uh, the only way to get there was by boat. And, you know, the population was small enough that it didn't get regular attention from the uh, steamship lines that would be typically ferrying people along the inland waterway from Savannah up to Charleston. But people were able to hail the boats when they would pass by the landings. And if they waved, the boats would come over to stop to pick them up. But there wasn't much going on at all. There was a tremendous interest in the forests really prior to about about 1920 and then later with the, with the Hilton Head Company. But you had uh, the, the turpentine company, the, especially one particular turpentine company that at one point purchased all of what today is known as Palmetto Bluff, and then leased a lot of other land around that as forests where they would essentially mine or harvest their turpentine. And that was a fascinating process in and of itself. But the, a company called J.E. Varn Turpentine and Cattle Company was the primary turpentine miner or harvester uh, in these parts. They essentially were gone after 1940 from the area, still still in Georgia. Now, during this time, several hunting clubs started getting established. How did the people that started these clubs even find Hilton Head, and how much land did they end up acquiring? Uh, great, great question. I mean, they're from different parts of the country, actually. Uh, following the Civil War, some of the, the uh, federally confiscated lands were sold to land speculators, primarily from the north. So there was some knowledge of Hilton Head uh, up you know, in the Northeast, primarily in New York area. You had people from the South that for one reason or another looked for hunting lands that had certain characteristics and had a lot of diversity of game, for instance, was a very important thing. Abundant waterfowl was another main characteristic that a lot of these hunting clubs looked for. Looked for, And, and the Sea Islands were somewhat known for having that kind of 
diverse population of, of, of species that were game species of one kind or another. And so you had people like uh, the Hilton Head Agricultural Club. Uh, they actually had planned on doing some farming on the lands of Hilton Head, but their farming operations were not particularly successful. So it ended up being a bunch of guys from North Carolina and Tennessee that were here from the 1930s, really through 1950, that owned uh, land near Leamington and also um, owned the um, Honeyhorn Plantations. And those were their primary hunting lands. Uh, the Buford Gun Club, much earlier on, actually from about 1900, owned uh, the land that today is uh, Palmetto Dunes and Leamington. And that was that was their one of their main hunting preserves. Uh, the Hurley family from the north, they owned what today is known as Otter Hole, but it, it had been called Otter Burn Plantation prior to that. But the Hurleys actually owned more land. They owned about 9,000 acres of Hilton Head, and almost all of it was used as a hunting property. And they would be after things like, you know, turkey and quail and duck and other waterfowl, uh, deer, wild boar, alligators from time to time, mink. And even snakes, rattlesnakes primarily were the ones, that, and, and water moccasins. I don't know why they wanted to hunt water moccasins, but they would go around in these uh, boats in marshes, and they would be the mo boats would be pulled by their guides, who were Native Islanders for almost without exception, and they would be posting them around, and they would basically take shotguns and shoot the water moccasins when they would see them in the water. Not a heck of a lot of sport, but I guess something to do. Well, I guess they needed something to make boots out of. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they could use the skins if they could fish them out of the water, but it's kind of an interesting process. I wish they had gotten all of them. <laughs> yeah. That's a nasty snake. <laughs> they sure haven't. <laughs> There's still areas on this island that have plenty of snakes. But yeah, so I mean, that was that was really what these, these hunting clubs were doing, and they were purely recreational. They had cabins um, on their property and, and even lodges. Uh, and some of them uh, that were anywhere from like the Hurley uh, house was a was a three story uh, structure that had multiple bedrooms. I can't remember the number exactly, but that was right on Broad Creek. And they had a dock, you know, a deep water dock out into Broad Creek that that they used for people coming in from who might take the main steamship to Savannah. And then they came take a shuttle over from Savannah to come in and hunt. They had magnificent parties at, at the Hurley house and the Clydes also, W.P. Clyde, who owned the steamship company that ran from New York to Savannah. They would be here and they would have these really elegant uh, hunting parties, men and women on horseback doing various things. Um, it's reported that the King of Sweden was a guest at one of the, one of the hunting parties at the Hurley's lodge. So it was. It was. Uh, it wasn't really an industry, but it was certainly a, a very well liked and robust pursuit for some of the wealthy families from the north and the south that had these hunting preserves here on the island. How did they even get here? Because Sea Pines Plantation, you know, Sea Pines when Charles Fraser started it up, people had a hard time finding that, and that's even after David Pearson was out sticking signs at every intersection from. <laughs> U.S. 17 all the way down to to Sea Pines, and there was a bridge. <laughs> they had a bridge built in the 50s. You know, I can't I can't imagine how difficult it was to get to these hunting club areas with no bridge and really no map or roads in, in the area. Well, I mean, what's what's fascinating, and we don't we don't really think about it today, but 
there were there was a way that people could come from the interior, and I'm thinking right now the people from North Carolina and Tennessee, and access ports that are not too far. For instance, you have the people from Chattanooga that could take a train from Chattanooga to Atlanta, from Atlanta to Augusta, from Augusta to Port Royal. I mean, Port Royal had a terminus, a railroad terminus by 1885 from Augusta. They, they had a lot more there. Port Royal is actually a very bustling little town that had a lot of uh, shipping activity, uh, naval uh, shipping, et cetera. So you had, a, you had railroad there. You had railroad to Savannah. And then access from Savannah or Port Royal to Hilton Head is, is not all that difficult. It's not a, not a long trip. And it would be always by boat going up to a private dock. And that's the way people would come in. And yes, they they had to know it was here and it was all word of mouth and family uh, stuff. The Hilton Head Agricultural Club and the Thompson Brothers from Gastonia, North Carolina, they were they were the staples of that club. But they were businessmen that did business in most of the major cities in the south. And so they had a wide ranging group of friends. And that's how people would find find out. And then they'd all come on the train and they'd get off and they'd all get on the steamboat that would bring them over. And that's that's how it happened. It just seems like you bring some friends with you and they're like, oh, where's your land? And you're looking around going, yeah, I think this is it because <laughs> it all looks the same. <laughs> it's like it's all pine trees and live oaks and and swamp at that point. It's like, yeah, my land runs from here to somewhere down over there. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. I mean, even today, I mean, I, you know, one of my friends who was from a big Beaufort family, uh, he talks about going to their fishing camp and they 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 have to go by boat to get to the fishing camp and he said often they would get lost because you know in the old days when they go out to the fishing camp they had somebody guiding them you know usually one of the native islanders that knew their way around the water is like a, a you know their the back of their hand but uh yeah no it's it it had to be very confusing which is why which is why you know the pirates liked it way back when by the people who were the Drug runners loved it during the early 80s. I mean, it's it always had that advantage, I guess, from that perspective. Well, there's an episode we're going to be doing at some point, drug running and Hilton Head <laughs> in the 80s. <laughs> it's like, where's Miami Vice when you need them? <laughs> exactly. I think it was the interview I did with Greg Russell, and he mentioned that if you want to know what Hilton Head was like back before the development, go to the backside of Defusky Island because it's very similar even today as to what Hilton Head was like before it it was developed and built up. You know, just the fact that, that very few roads on the island were paved um, up through 1970. There weren't a, a ton of paved roads. So it's, it's, it's a little difficult knowing the island today to imagine how that could be the case. But it was a very, very remote, very isolated place, um, accessible and available really only to um, a small group of people who knew about it, other than the people who lived here. And there, and there weren't many of them that came in. So After World War II, the fishing and shrimping industry really started to pick up, and so did the oyster industry. What can you tell us about the oyster canning here in Hilton Head and the area? The oyster business actually started right after World War I, and, and World War I was the time when you had the first major infusion of non-islanders 
non-native islanders to the island since the civil war and that was that w- those were military personnel again the coast guard and the marines that that came in at the time and established a fairly large camp down on the grounds near the lighthouse in uh, Leamington plantation today and then after that after world war 1 in the in the 20s primarily you had some of the early families that were involved in the shrimping business and the oystering business. The Toomers and the Hudsons, for instance, who started uh, canning oysters and packing shrimp uh, in these factories that were set up along the banks of the creek, along Skull Creek and, and uh, the Deepwater Creeks. And then a little bit later on in the in the 1920s, the uh, Maggioni brothers, who were a fairly large operation originally from the Northeast, but had set up factories as far down as Sapelo Island along the Georgia coast, Skidaway, you know, in Savannah area, and then also had a, a factory on, on Hilton Head. And I think at one time there were uh, about five oyster canning facilities here on the island, and they employed... Uh, not only native islanders, but um, the Maggioni brothers w- would imply employ children mainly from their family and their extended family. So you see these wonderful pictures, photographs of people in the oyster canning factories that show some of the native islander women along with these young children who are doing various things, you know, with the oysters, preparing them for, for canning. But that business kept going really up until the crash of the market. And then you know, at that point, uh, more difficult for a lot of people to afford oysters that had been affording them up until then. And uh, the oyster canning business pretty much folded at that point. Not to say the oyster business folded at all, because, you know, following, I think following World War II, that becomes an element of people's diets that they're seeking more and more. Early on in our history, I mean, oysters were a delicacy that was kind of saved for special meals, um, Thanksgiving and Christmas and those kind of things. But then it, it kind of worked its way in as a much more mainstream element of the diet in the post-World War II years. And we have, you know, the companies that are they're in business down here today. There are not as many that have the large shrimping fleets and oystering businesses that were present in the 1950s and 60s, but there are still a number of them here that will regularly export uh, oysters and shrimp outside of the of the local area. Same thing with the blue crabs. I mean, our crabbing industry is similar to that. And pretty much all of these companies were involved in all of those forms of shellfish, shrimping, crabbing, and uh, oysters. Do you know what the state of the fishing, crabbing, and oyster industry is right now? Is is crab pretty much the big thing? Are there any oyster canneries still left? Not so much, not so much the canneries, but the but the shipping of of oysters, um, harvested oysters, not necessarily shucked oysters. But I know that you know with with the advent of the ability to raise oyster colonies in baskets in the tidal rivers up from the coast, away from the shellfish beds that are natural that we see in Skull Creek, for instance, or Broad Creek or uh, the local waterways. The, there's, there's an increasing ability to, to supply the amount needed for local markets and a surplus for other markets. So I know that a, a couple of years ago, we were supplying the eastern shore of Maryland crab houses with 
the bulk of their crab supply. They weren't getting them, you know, from the Chesapeake Bay waters as much as they were getting them from places down in this part of the world that were actually exporting crab up to Maryland, which is kind of funny when you think about it. Yeah, so much for Maryland is for crabs. <laughs> Maryland is for <laughs> South Carolina crabs, apparently. There you, there you go. When did the Hilton Head Company start? And how long were they on the island? And then when they wrapped up operation, what happened at that point? The Hilton Head Company uh, started in 1949, and that was a group of uh, four investing families in a consortium of investors who were all connected one way or another to the businesses that required a supply of lumber. General Fraser, uh, Charles' father, who was a who actually was called away during the Korean War after the Hilton Head Company was in operation. He had been awarded the contract to build the housing at Fort Stewart down near Savannah and knew that with the post-war boom, that it was, the lumber was in, it's kind of like today, lumber's in such short supply that the only way I'm going to have enough to satisfy my contract is to vertically integrate. So, you know, that's when... He sent Charles and Joe on this scouting trip by boat uh, along the coast from, I guess, down by Fort McAllister uh, up along the Savannah Sea Islands and then into South Carolina uh, to, to scout places. And they identified Hilton Head as a magnificent stand of timber for lumbering. They ended up buying Hilton Head, I believe in 1950 was when they actually closed on the 20,000 acres of property that had been previously owned by um, the two guys from the north, Loomis and Thorne, who had acquired that 20,000 acres from various sources over the years. And they started the uh, lumbering business here from 1950, continued it through 1955, and then essentially transitioned from the Hilton Head Company to uh, the various pieces of land that were owned by those investing families. And General Fraser ended up turning his land over, uh, selling it, a long-term sale to his son, Charles, who began the development of sea pines. And that was in 1956. The sea pines company was formed and they started selling land in 1957. And that was the beginning of sea pines. It wasn't really a a fast start. Um, They knew that they had something. Uh, with the bridge being built in 1956 and 48,000 cars crossing it that first year, they knew that they had something good. But it really took the better part of 12, 13 years for Sea Pines to really start to gain traction. And that was kind of coincident with the completion of the Heritage Links and, and Harbor Town. And starting in about 1960, the outside world started to look at Hilton Head more because it was starting to gain the reputation of a world-class golf resort. That was because of the ocean and the, and the sea marsh courses in Sea Pines. It's interesting, as we've been discussing, there were timber operations on the island. It, it seems like several periods, uh, you know, allowing the, the new growth uh, to grow and mature. I was working on a sustainability project for a client, and we were talking about they're involved in the timber industry. And we were talking with a timber expert. He said, I found this actually absolutely fascinating because I didn't realize this. He was saying, you know, there's a lot of folks that are like, don't ever cut a tree down. 
And he said that is absolutely, especially with oak, and I'm assuming it's probably the same with most other species, if you don't cut the mature tree down, you will absolutely kill off all the forest because oak especially will rot from the inside. So if you allow it to mature and don't cut it down, it stands there and rots. And because of the tree canopy, it never allows the saplings below it to actually get the sunlight and the moisture that they need in order to grow. He said the most sustainable thing you can do for the forest is actually harvest mature trees because it allows those saplings that are down in the forest floor, the sunlight to grow because you open that canopy up and it allows them to grow. And he's like, it's just a process. And he's like, you have to do it right. You have to do it responsibly, but you have to do it or otherwise you end up with a lot of problems that you, there are unintended consequences by not actually harvesting uh, mature trees. And I'm sure that's I mean, that's so true with so many different species, whether they're flora or fauna. I mean, you know, they, they tend to work that way. And regular harvesting in a responsible manner is something that usually is beneficial for every everything. And most of the timbering that was done here, the lumbering that was done on Hilton Head Island was was done responsibly, as was the turpentine mining. And the turpentine mining would, you know, some people would look at what they had to do when they were getting the, the gum out of the trees as something that would destroy the trees. But to the contrary, the turpentine harvesting did not destroy the pine trees completely at all. In fact, you know, apparently there are certain places in the low country today, not that I've ever seen one, but um, that the the marks on the trunks of a very mature old pine tree will sometimes show uh, the what they call these galleries. They're V-shaped marks with the point of the V toward the ground at different heights along the trunk of the tree that were made during turpentine operations that were back as far as 60 years ago. Rich, the turpentine industry was pretty prevalent around the low country area in Hilton Head. What was the process of actually acquiring the turpentine? Well, the, the uh, turpentine company would would lease the the land that the trees were on that they would use to extract the uh, sap really from the from the pine trees and the collection of the sap that really was a, a pitch or a gum uh, from the pine trees was done in a reservoir of some kind or another. In the early days, they they did something called forming chop boxes and the chop box was really uh cut or hollowed out of the base of the tree and it was a a a depressed reservoir that would actually hold sap you know in later days they ended up having a tube that would funnel the sap into a metal reservoir or a bucket of some almost like you know think about people getting maple syrup out of a maple tree but um those chop boxes would be cut into the bottoms of the trees and then at different levels on the tree trunks above where the reservoir was that was collecting all of the sap, they would make these what they called uh, galleries, which were V-shaped cuts into the bark, into the uh, skin below the bark of the tree. And the sap would actually run down the Vs to the tip and then form a globule of gum at the end of each of those Vs. 
And they would basically come by and clear those reservoirs and clear those bees once a day on the trees that were marked for the sap extraction. They would typically work the forest, at least in these in this part of the world, they would work from March through November. During the other months, things were cool enough that it was, you know, the sap was not running freely and it didn't make as much sense to try to do the extraction. And then the the crude gum that had been accumulated through this daily uh, cleaning of the uh, galleries and the, and the chop boxes, that was then gathered into barrels and then it was distilled into what they called spirits of turpentine and other products. I mean, the gum from pine trees was used very much the same way petroleum is used today. Yeah, it makes gasoline and it makes motor oil and it makes a whole bunch of other products that are also used. And that was a large, that was a big business. Um, It ended up from about after the 1940s, there was really not, not much turpentine harvesting done in South Carolina and most of it moved to the interior. Many of the turpentine companies were taken over as divisions of some of the large paper companies. And those paper companies end up being the ones that tended to own the large stands of forest growth in the Savannah, Port Royal Sound area in the 1950s and 60s. A lot of the knowledge about the use of the pine trees goes back to the very early days with what they called naval stores. Naval stores was anything that was extracted from a, from pine trees that could be used for naval purposes, like shipbuilding. And so pine pitch was used as a sealant, and pine tar used as a sealant for the for the planks of the ships. And that was very much that way through the days of of building wooden ships until they came up with better substances. So that goes back. You know, that goes back to the early, early explorers, to the French that built the first two ships built in what became North America on Paris Island in 1562, which is kind of cool. Turpentine was a major phase of our history. If you think about things going on of an industrial nature on Hilton Head between the end of the Civil War and the development of sea ponds. Because of Charles Frazier and the way he helped to guide that logging operation in cutting certain trees down and forcing them to leave certain trees, that really allowed Hilton Head to continue to thrive when it came to nature. They left a lot of the live oaks. There were a lot of pine trees, especially the ones along the ocean front that he insisted that they don't cut down. And he made up a few excuses for dad saying, Oh, those are wind twisted or that they're not as good. But he recognized the fact that you can't just cut everything down and you need to leave some of these trees in order to maintain the beauty of what is Hilton Head Island. You know what I love about that too, Jay, is that so much of that was not necessarily based on intuition at all, but was based on the the research that he did in those two summers that he was, you know, doing the Yale Law School routine. And he actually traveled to uh, seaside resorts up and down the East Coast. And he interviewed developers and he interviewed residents of those those places, uh, you know, trying to find out 
what were the things that made a successful place successful? And, and from a development standpoint, what were the things to uh, try to avoid as things were de- developing? And so much of the information that he gained there led him to formulate the policies that resulted in this incredibly responsible development of the area that ended up being a major attraction for, you know, the population. The thing the thing that I love is that he actually found that the presence of mature growth, natural growth, trees, gave residents a sense of comfort that they wouldn't have in an area where it had been clear cut and things were just kind of built up all over the place on this clear cut land that had no mature growth. And so that that's, that was probably one of the main influences in him deciding to try to keep a lot of this mature growth that was on Hilton Head at the time. Rich, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your insight and your time. Jay, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. See you next time. 